Section 3 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 10, May 1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Is Climatic Aridity Impending on the Pacific Slope? The Testimony of the Forest by J.B. Lyberg the extension of explorations and observations in the region of the country west of the Rocky Mountains tends in many ways to develop and confirm the proposition that a steadily progressive aridity is slowly replacing former more humid climatic conditions. This change is manifest in various ways, most conspicuously in the decreasing volume of water in many of the lakes and streams throughout the region, as shown by the existence of former beach lines at higher levels, and in the profound disturbances and modifications taking place in the native flora. The phenomena which follow the advance of aridity are not limited by altitude, for while the desert conditions at low elevations exhibit themselves in their most intense aspect, they are also clearly traceable to the highest summits, where gradually dwindling glaciers and abnormally high extensions of certain lowland types of forest show the general trend of climatic change. In the general exhibition of increasing aridity, there are to be noted two important distinctions. One is dependent upon climatic effects, the other upon the relief of a region as affecting the drainage and is termed soil aridity. Excellent examples of the latter occur on the plains of the Columbia, where the great coulees or sunken water channels which traverse the plains in all directions are separated by comparatively narrow blocks of plateau-like country. The drainage from these elevated tracts is extremely rapid. As a consequence, their summits and slopes are left without sufficient soil moisture during the growing season to maintain a forest stand, although the annual precipitation is high enough to make tree growth possible were the drainage conditions different. Similar examples occur in the forested subhumid and humid regions where any large area on which temperature and precipitation are practically the same throughout often show a growth of species belonging to the drier areas in the midst of the humid groups of trees, merely because the angle of slope in some localities favors a more rapid drainage than upon the contiguous areas. Similar effects are sometimes produced by excessive porosity of soil. Loose sand and gravel or volcanic ashes are poor conservators of moisture and part with it readily, both through evaporation and percolation. Soils of these sorts are not common, however, in these regions where, as a rule, moisture-retentive qualities are the predominant characteristics. In the following discussion, the question of soil aridity is eliminated and the effects of climatic aridity alone are considered. The variations of plant life which accompany the encroachments of aridity are diverse and often very complex. Innumerable general modifications and adaptations occur, mostly tending toward a more or less successful resistance to the stress imposed by drier climatic conditions. 
local peculiarities depending upon adjacent heights or depressions specialize, that is to say, they lessen or increase the general degree of aridity prevalent over any large area, thereby favoring minute adaptations or gradual transitions to more extensive and pronounced modifications. In the region west of the Rocky Mountains, the forest as a unit is the type of vegetation which, aside from the purely aquatic element of the flora, suffers a more profound disturbance of its equilibrium and is more quickly and thoroughly driven out by the advancing aridity than any other. In the herbaceous and, to a lesser extent, in the suffratescent flora, there is a gradual evolution of new forms, or of entire groups of certain types, to meet the changing environments. It is doubtless true that many herbaceous and shrubby species have gone under in this struggle within recent geologic times, while others are so rare and scattered as to warrant the assumption that they too are rapidly approaching extinction. But, on the other hand, there are many groups possessing the power of adaptation in a high degree, and through the slow development of modifications or by evolution of what we term species, they are enabled for a time to withstand successfully very adverse conditions. It is different with the forest growth in this region overwhelmingly composed of cone-bearing trees representing comparatively few species, it has an extremely narrow margin for the evolution of new forms or species. The fact stands out clear and distinct that most of the types and species of the order of coniferae west of the Rocky Mountains possess the power of adaptation only in a very limited degree. Their outlying forms are few and only vaguely definable. It is true that we can recognize differences such as that of texture and color of wood, variations in bark characteristics, or in the general port of the various individuals of a species upon any given area, but the differences are not such as to indicate that they constitute a definite and sharply determined trend in adaptability. They rather convey the impression that they are a series of expiring gasps of a type of vegetation which reached its culminating point of development immensely far back in time and is now on the road toward complete extinction. The forest areas in this region, which have been more closely examined than any other in relation to the effects of increasing aridity, are the tracks adjacent to and encircling the Columbia watershed in Idaho, eastern Oregon, and western Washington. We shall first examine the tracks lying within these limits, thence passing to others elsewhere not so well known. When the coniferous flora of the region is investigated, it is found that certain species have a far higher ratio of endurance to conditions of aridity than have others. This might be taken to indicate a certain degree of adaptability, but the strongly marked characters which separate the species were acquired ages ago and, with the exception of one or two species, do not in our region in the present age show any marked evolutionary tendencies. The minor effects of the encroachment of aridity upon the forested areas are many, 
but comparatively unimportant, the greater effects are contained in one general phase, which strikes at the very foundation of the species' existence. It consists in a gradual loss of reproductive power in the individual trees, and hence in the species as a unit, and is marked by two periods. In the first, we have a gradual crowding back to more humid tracts of such species as require a considerable degree of soil and atmospheric moisture for their growth. They are replaced by others capable of enduring subhumid or distinctly semi-arid environments. In the second period, we have a gradual crowding out or a complete extinction of the species of replacement, hastened or caused in the latter, as in the former case, by a loss of reproductive vigor and a final complete deforestation of the particular area and the creation of a treeless region. There are three general types of climatic conditions to which the term arid will apply. They are semi-arid, arid, and desert. As here employed, the semi-arid are regions not necessarily deforested, but which support a tree growth of peculiar species in other localities than in proximity to streams and lakes. The arid are regions completely deforested, away from streams and lakes, natural or artificial, but which bear an often rich and varied flora of herbaceous and suffrutescent vegetation. The deserts are tracts without vegetation. The two former are abundantly represented in this region by very large areas, as we shall see. The third, or the desert, does not exist here. It is common to speak of the desert regions of eastern Oregon, for example, but the fact is in no place has aridity reached its third and last stage. When herbaceous vegetation is absent, as on certain alkali flats east of Steins Mountains or on drifting sand dunes along the Columbia and on the plains of eastern Washington and northeastern Oregon, it is due to local soil conditions, not to absence of sufficient precipitation. To facilitate a more detailed examination of the various forest conditions as modified by increasing aridity, the region under consideration will be divided into certain classes or zones. These zonal distinctions have reference solely to the amount of precipitation which each class receives without regard to altitudinal limitations and will be designated arid, semi-arid, subhumid, and humid areas. The Regions of Aridity the regions of greatest aridity north of the 42nd parallel of latitude between the Rocky Mountains and the Cascades are found in Idaho on the Snake River Plains, in eastern Oregon on the plateau areas between the Snake and the Oahe Rivers on the one hand and the Steins Mountains on the other. In the region bounded by the Crooked River and the Malheur Lakes and River on the north. Steins Mountains on the east and the northern boundary of Nevada on the south and in the Deschutes Depression between the Blue Mountains and the Cascades in eastern Washington north of the Snake and east and south of the Columbia River. The aridity which prevails upon these areas is of various degrees of intensity, depending more or less upon local conditions and the proximity or distance of humid snowy mountain ranges. 
In eastern Washington, the driest section is situated at the eastern base of the Cascades and extends eastward some 60 or 70 miles, gradually merging into uniform semi-arid and subhumid conditions as the moisture-condensing bitterroot ranges are approached. In eastern Oregon, the most arid tracks are found to the west of the Owyhee, extending in a westerly and northerly direction 100 to 120 miles. In eastern Washington, the Cascade Range evidently contributes largely to the aridity which exists on its east slope and is therefore a local factor, but in eastern Oregon, the most arid tracks lie at a distance of 200 miles or more east from the Cascades and owe their origin to the interception of the moisture-laden westerly and southwesterly winds by the Sierra Nevada and, in a lesser degree, by other intermediate ranges. Irrespective of local conditions, however, it can be stated as a general proposition borne out by observed facts that the crest of the advancing wave of aridity in the intermontane region of southern Idaho, eastern Oregon, and eastern Washington is traveling from the southeast toward the north and northwest. The tracks termed arid bear no forests. It is true that narrow fringes of trees skirt many of the rivers or creeks which meander through these areas, but the growth is made possible only by the humid or subhumid soil conditions due to the proximity of streams and cease at short distances from their banks. Looking backward in time, there are abundant proofs that many of the now treeless tracks once bore a forest covering. Silicified wood is found in thousands of localities in the region where no tree growth is now possible owing to insufficient precipitation and its occurrence on the surface of these plains not as transported material but in place argues in favor of the hypothesis that the extinction of this forest growth does not date back so very many centuries. The fossil wood where it occurs on the treeless areas is found resting directly on the volcanic rocks, indicating that sufficient time has not passed since the forest grew there to change the surface in any perceptible degree. The fossil woods referred to consist of remains of oak and probably of pines and junipers, and, if not wholly identical with species that now exist in the adjacent regions, are very closely related. There are also many localities on these arid tracks where are found fossil plants of the tertiary age embedded in rock, deeply covered with basalt, but they belong to a period when specifically distinct climatic conditions as compared with those of our age prevailed in the region and are not here considered. The areas classed as arid exist in many localities in this intermontane region. The most extensive have already been noticed, but favored by local conditions, many small lobes from the main body of aridity stretch out on all sides. That they should penetrate into the areas we term semi-arid is to be expected, as they are but a step removed, but it is rather surprising to find them in the midst of subhumid conditions, yet such is exactly the case. 
along the eastern base of the cascades many of the south and east facing slopes are distinctly arid though surrounded by an adjoining decidedly subhumid regions similar conditions are encountered on the east south and west slopes of the powder river mountains on the plateau areas between the Clearwater and the Salmon Rivers in Idaho, and even in scattered localities north of the Snake, among the terminations of the western spurs of the Bitterroots. Crossing the Bitterroots and entering the basins and plateaus on the west slope of the main range of the Rocky Mountains, we once more meet these extensions of arid conditions projecting into the subhumid regions. They are very well marked in the region of the Blackfoot Basins, where they cross the main range and connect with the arid Upper Missouri Plains through the comparatively low passes at the head of the Blackfoot tributaries. Thence, stretching westward, they cover large areas of the Clark Fork of the Columbia Basin, and following the valley of this stream, approach to within 60 or 70 miles of the eastern Washington Plains. In the Clark Fork watershed, these arid extensions are usually bordered by a margin of semi-aridity, their penumbra as it were, but in many places they join and exist in the midst of the subhumid timbered tracts without any semi-arid transitions. The causes which operate to bring about these apparently erratic and sporadic advances of arid conditions are not very clear. Where they occur in proximity to the general body of aridity, their presence is easily explained. But we find such tracks covered with herbaceous and shrubby vegetation peculiar to the very arid regions in the midst of a forest of yellow pine, or even higher, where the elevation borders on the subalpine. These isolated spots might be compared to sparks wafted far in advance of a coming conflagration, each one consisting a nucleus for the further spread of its own peculiar conditions. The altitude of the arid tracks varies considerably. At the junction of Snake and Columbia Rivers, it amounts to less than 150 feet above sea level. On the southeastern Oregon Plateau, it rises to fully 6,000 feet on the slopes of various ranges, such as Steins Mountains. The ranges to the east of Warner Lake and on unnamed heights between the Polinas and Malheur Lake. Further north, we find the arid tracks at elevations varying from 600 to 3,000 feet on the eastern Washington Plains and from 4,000 to 5,000 feet in the regions between the Bitterroots and the main crest of the Rocky Mountains. The Regions of Semi-Aridity From the arid regions we enter those termed semi-arid. We meet here a forest growth. It is one which throughout these regions is strictly typical of semi-arid environments. As it comes most closely in contact with the highest degree of aridity and has to bear the full force of the ultimate and permanent deforesting process, its condition and aspect become doubly interesting. The forest growth is wholly composed of junipers belonging to the following species. Juniperus monosperma one-seeded juniper, Juniperus occidentalis, western juniper, Juniperus scopolorum, mountain juniper, 
They occur in the various semi-arid districts as follows. Western juniper in eastern Oregon and probably on the Snake River Plains. Mountain juniper on the areas between the Rocky and Bitterroot Mountains, thus extending into the eastern Washington Plains. One-seeded juniper on the Snake River Plains and along the hills bordering this river valley nearly to its confluence with the Clearwater. The western juniper is the most abundant of these species and forms true forests. It occurs as close and absolutely pure stands in many localities. The most extensive are found in Crook and Wasco counties in Oregon, where it covers areas of over 100 square miles with a stand twice as heavy as the ordinary stand of yellow pine in Oregon and Washington. Outside of these large tracts, the species occurs in small groves or aggregates or as scattered individuals throughout most of the plains regions of eastern Oregon. These juniper forests exhibit clearly the second period of the general phase of progressive extinction, that of deficient reproductive capacity. The western juniper reaches large dimensions on the eastern Oregon plains. Individuals occur with basal diameters up to six feet. It is a species of slow growth, centuries being required to produce such large trees as just noted. In examining the stand, one is struck by the great preponderance of old trees, the comparatively small percentage of young, and the marked deficiency of seedling or sapling growth. It is noticeable that older trees produce enormous quantities of galbels, juniper berries, but on examination one finds that most of them contain only aborted seeds. Round about the trees the ground is thickly strewn with berries, but the lack of seedlings proves how few of the seeds possess germinating power and indicates that the general climatic conditions are not favorable to seed germination. In many localities, extensive burns are found. They have ravaged the edges of the forests or plowed wide swaths through what were once very dense and uniform stands. Some of these burns are very old, the stumps indicating that perhaps a century or more has passed since the fires. Others are comparatively recent. Reforestation does not take place on the burned-over areas. They become part of the adjacent arid treeless tracks. Places occur in the midst of heavy stands entirely devoid of trees and stumps. It is probable that they represent extremely ancient burns, showing that reforestation in the juniper growth has practically ceased on areas contiguous to the main body of aridity. It is not alone when fire has swept the juniper forest out of existence that one notices a lack of reforestation. It is also to be seen adjacent to settlements where growth has been cut clean for domestic uses, and the great number of detached groves and scattered individuals dispersed over the plains are arguments in the same general line. It is, of course, impossible to say with absolute certainty that all these outlying groups are parts of a uniform juniper forest which once extended over the entire plains regions of eastern Oregon. Yet, from analogy, we are justified in concluding that such is the fact. 
the fires and direct human agencies which are cutting into the larger bodies of forest at the present time produce just such detached groves and scattered individuals, and the gaps give every promise of remaining permanently deforested. The forest of western juniper extends up to the subhumid areas where it meets the western yellow pine. It even goes beyond a strict line of demarcation and penetrates several miles into the yellow pine areas. It has been noticed that in many places the juniper produces an abundance of fully developed seeds and a plentiful supply of seedlings where it comes in contact with the subhumid regions. Such would be a natural result of the more favorable moisture conditions prevalent there. Accompanying the front of the semi-arid wave comes a tree which, in these regions, can endure neither the same high degree of aridity as the juniper, nor so great a humidity as the yellow pine. This is the mountain mahogany, Circocarpus letifolius, which therefore furnishes an excellent indication of the limits of the quasi-semi-arid and lower subhumid conditions, which mark the front of the semi-arid advance and the rear of the subhumid retreat. The mountain mahogany occurs, therefore, in numerous localities all along the edge of this debatable ground and mingles not alone with the yellow pine, but in many instances also with the lodgepole pine, ascending to elevations of 7,000 feet. Crossing from the eastern Oregon plains to those of the snake in southern Idaho, we find a growth of the one-seeded juniper, Juniperus monosperma. Comparatively little is known of the growth and distribution of the junipers on the Snake River Plains, but this species is one which prevails largely on the arid regions in Utah and should perhaps be regarded as being pushed toward the north through the stress of increasing aridity farther south. Coming into the interior Rocky Mountain region, we meet a juniper much resembling the Virginia juniper or red cedar of the east, it is the species named mountain juniper, Juniperus scopulorum, a small tree or shrub. It occupies more or less closely the semi-arid regions on the west slope of the range, doubtless extending across the eastern declivities along the lines of semi-aridity. This juniper can endure a greater degree of humidity than the other two species mentioned. So far as it has come under my observation, it reproduces itself freely. It has not yet encountered a stress of arid conditions excessive enough to lower its seed-producing capacity beyond the balance point. It extends along various of the mountain streams into the plains of eastern Washington, usually keeping close to the streams. It does not spread into the open plateau region of this state to any noticeable extent, indicating that the semi-aridity of the interior Rocky Mountain basins, where the tree grows on hillsides and in valleys alike, is not so intensive as on the open plains of eastern Washington. The Subhumid Regions Adjoining the region of semi-aridity lie the subhumid belts. Four species of conifers are of common occurrence here. They are western yellow pine, Pinus ponderosa, red fir, Sudatsuga mucronita, lodgepole pine, Pinus muriana, and great silver fir, 
obvious grandis. Their endurance of dry soil and climatic conditions is in the order named, the yellow pine ranking highest and the great silver fir lowest in the scale. The western yellow pine occurs generally throughout the entire subhumid area in this region. In course of time, it has succeeded in establishing a high degree of adaptability to the desiccating climatic changes, and it therefore forms the extreme rear of the coniferous growth in the subhumid belt, receiving the full force of the oncoming semi-aridity. While the tree thus shows its drought-resisting power, it is erroneous to suppose that it has reached a stage of adaptation where it absolutely requires dry regions for its development. The heaviest stands of western yellow pine that have come under my notice, varying from 30,000 to 50,000 feet BM per acre, occur in small patches in the Selway Basin of the Bitterroot Forest Reserve, where the precipitation probably is not less than 70 or 80 inches per annum. Where the species is found under such conditions, it is fair to assume that it represents the more ancient form, capable of enduring more humid environments than the forms which now make up the bulk of the species in these regions. As a rule, however, the tree occupies the lower areas of the subhumid regions and is mostly of open or scattered growth. Coming now to the effects of semi-aridity upon the growth of this species, we may observe that, as a rule, it has not progressed far enough to seriously affect its reproductive capacity over any very large area. We find, however, where the species borders the semi-arid tracts of greatest intensity or where here and there long narrow tongues, lobes, or thin lines of it project several miles from the main body of growth into them, that in such localities the reproductive capacity of the tree is exceedingly limited or altogether wanting. In other places, especially in eastern Oregon, where a few small groves or single trees are found crowning some isolated eminence entirely cut off from all direct connection with the species elsewhere, the same condition is noticeable, and precisely as is the case with the western juniper, the ovules are generally unfertilized, or, if fertilized, most of them abort, and those that are fertile and develop into perfect seeds fail to germinate. In consequence, seedlings are rare or altogether lacking in such localities. One of the phenomena noticeable in this species, when much exposed to the desiccating influences proceeding from contiguous arid tracts, is a remarkable dwindling in its cone dimensions. Normally, in these regions, the mature cones are from three to four inches in length, but where the species occurs in proximity to the deforested areas on the eastern Oregon plains, the cones are frequently not more than one and a half to two inches in length. A most conspicuous example of this phenomenon are the yellow pine forests on the northern slopes of the Paulina Mountains, where thousands of individuals bear cones but a trifle longer than those of the lodgepole pine, and the cone dimensions of the entire growth are far below the normal. 
as this tract of forest is separated only by a narrow strip of semi-aridity from areas of intense aridity, it is naturally under a high stress of the latter condition of climate, and the influence is fully warranted that the decrease in cone dimensions is a forerunner to general sterility in the species upon these particular areas. Going farther northward, there are seen thousands of localities throughout the yellow pine areas which are absolutely deforested or contain a few very old lone individuals. Some of these tracts consist of south-facing hillsides which receive the full force of the desiccating rays of the sun. If they, in addition, possess a high angle of slope causing too rapid drainage, soil aridity is likely to result with consequent deforestation. But many bare tracts exist when soil aridity is not a factor, and the influence which prevents the spread of the adjacent forest into such areas must be climatic, so far as can be determined. The middle and upper portions of the subhumid belts carry, in addition to the yellow pine, the other species enumerated. Two of them exhibit clear traces of yielding to the effects of semi-aridity. They are the great silver fir and the red fir. The former is exceedingly deficient in cone production, but yields a high percentage of seeds with germinating power. The latter is a free cone producer, but matures an insignificant proportion of its ovules. In this respect, it acts exactly similar to the western juniper. The great silver fir possesses small powers of adaptability. On the western spurs of the bitter roots, it has developed a type of tree, low, small in diameter, soft and sappy in its wood, short-lived, and with extremely scanty cone production. This form takes a lower place in the subhumid zone, that is to say, nearer to the line of semi-aridity, than does the larger and more fruitful type. The adaptability of the red fir is of a much higher type than the foregoing. Notwithstanding its deficient seed production, there is no evidence that it is not maintaining the integrity of its stands throughout our region. It is not confined to subhumid areas exclusively, thriving and developing its largest dimensions in extremely humid situations on the west slope of the Cascades, but in the region under consideration, it belongs to the subhumid areas and, as before remarked, it is here deficient in seed production. A factor enters here to be considered later. This is temperature conditions. It is evident that unless a certain ratio of increase in the mean annual temperature accompanies the aridity, there is a limit of tolerance beyond which certain species cannot be forced. When this limit is reached, the species must succumb, and this is probably the reason why the red fur does not push far into the humid areas in these regions. The lodgepole pine possesses the highest power of adaptability among the subhumid group of trees. It ranges from the humid down through the subhumid and well into the lower edge of the semi-arid belts. While not a plentiful producer of perfected seeds, most of the ovules aborting, 
It amply makes up for this deficiency by its magnitude of cones and the early age at which it begins to produce them. If the present vigor of the species continues, it promises to become the dominant one on all subhumid and humid areas in our region. In the subhumid forests of eastern Oregon, along the lower slopes of the Cascades, three species enter which are lacking farther north. They are Abeus concolor, white fir, Librocedrus decurrens, incense cedar, Pinus labertiana, sugar pine. The white fir, perhaps not specifically distinct from the great silver fir, occupies the same general place in the subhumid group of trees on the more southern areas than the latter does on the northern. We might even suppose that the great silver fir is a modification of the white fir evolved to meet changing temperature and humidity conditions. It is evident from the relative position which the white fir occupies that its limits of endurance to increased temperature and lower humidity are far higher than those of the great silver fir. The incense cedar and sugar pine come into the middle areas of the subhumid belts. Their distribution or retreat northward or into the humid areas is limited by temperature considerations. As they show no adaptability to meet them, their extension northward is precluded and their extinction will be rapid compared with other species in this region. The sugar pine is a free cone and seed producer, while the incense cedar appears to be deficient in this respect. End of section three.